Last week, we looked at the covenant of baptism, how God's covenant promise, I will be a God to you and to your children, is really the ground not only of infant baptism, it's really also the basis of the Christian home, the Christian family. Uh, Today, I want to go further with this. I want to look at how the covenant of baptism gets worked out, the outworking of the covenant, the outworking of the covenant in our families, especially for us as mothers and fathers with our children, how it bears upon how we raise our children. So last week we saw God's covenant promises include our children. This week we want to ask, what does that mean? If they are to be raised as Christians, okay, great, but what does that look like? That raises all kinds of issues and questions. And I would say even many Christians who believe in infant baptism, who would say, yes, I can see that being taught in Scripture, really don't understand what it means or how the covenant should work out in practice. To understand what infant baptism means, uh, I, I think we've got to recognize it's hard for people today to grasp. And so what I want us to do here at the beginning of this is to look at God's covenants, look at how covenant headship and covenant responsibility work, and then look at our culture and how far our culture is from this particular model or pattern of looking at life. So one thing that God's covenant clearly teaches is what you might call corporate responsibility. Now, our culture uh, tends to be a radically individualistic culture where uh, expressive individualism is kind of the reigning philosophy of the day. But biblically, God's covenants teach a, a doctrine of corporate responsibility that clashes very sharply with that kind of radical individualism. Let me give you several case studies, several examples of, of how this Works out. I think a really good example of this is found in Job chapter 1. We learn right off the bat that Job is a righteous man, so he is clearly a godly husband and father. And listen to what these opening verses, this is Job chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Listen to what these verses say. His sons used to go out and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So all of Job's children gathering together to feast together. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. What is Job doing here? He's offering sacrifice on behalf of his children. We might ask the question, shouldn't his children be offering their own sacrifices? Well, see, Job here is acting as a faithful covenant head. He is assuming responsibility for his covenant household. He is a covenant man, and he understands the covenant family, and he understands his own covenant headship. The Bible tells us Job is a righteous man in the opening verses of this book, and then it immediately uses this as an example of his righteousness. It shows him taking responsibility even for the sins of his children, offering sacrifice on their behalf, interceding before the Lord before them. Now think about this. Job is not guilty of their sins. That's not what this means. His kids' sins, those are their sins. Job is not guilty of their sins, but he does in some way take responsibility for them. That is a key distinction. And I would suggest that you're actually already familiar with this guilt and responsibility distinction. 
Because this is exactly what happened on the cross. Jesus is not guilty of any of our sins. Obviously, he's the sinless son of God. But he did take responsibility for our sins on the cross. And of course, he did uniquely what no one else could do in offering himself as a sacrifice for our sins. But that's what he's doing as our covenant head. He's taking responsibility for our sins. That's what Job is doing at this covenantal level, this family level for his children. In fact, I think it's interesting. Job knows that his responsibility extends even to the heart sins, the heart posture of his children, not just their words and actions, but even if one of his kids has cursed God in his heart, Job knows he must deal with that, he must own it, he must take responsibility for it. Now, that does not mean that his kids aren't also responsible for their sins. They are. But because his children are under his covenant authority and his covenant care, they are his responsibility. And you see Job acting on that here. In fact, I think this example, again, shows us something very, very important, that Biblically, the covenant allows for layers of responsibility. Okay, by contrast, our culture uh, sees individuals, you can think of it this way, our culture sees individuals as billiard balls on a pool table. And obviously, no two balls can occupy the same space. So responsibility is always a zero-sum game. We tend to think in terms of either or instead of both and. If you ask, are Job's sons responsible for their own sins? The answer is yes. But then if you ask, is Job in some way responsible for them too? The answer is also yes. In our culture, we tend to think that uh, either a father is responsible or a child is responsible, but it can't be both. But biblically, it is both. There are layers of responsibility. It is possible for more than one person to be responsible for any given action. And it's not even that the responsibility is divided 50-50 and somehow apportioned out in that kind of way. It's just that responsibility varies according to our relationships. Uh, there are varying obligations we have, varying responsibilities we have depending on Relationship. So here with Job, you see that a father is responsible for his household. Job knew that. Job acted on that. Here's another example. Genesis chapter 3. Uh, Adam and his, his wife have sinned. And what does the Lord do when he comes to them in the garden? Genesis 3.9, then the Lord God called to Adam. Not to Adam and Eve, not to Adam and the woman, but just to Adam. Why? We know the woman is responsible for her sin, and she will ultimately be cursed for it, even as the man is cursed for his sin. Why does the Lord God call out to Adam? Well, it's because Adam was responsible not only for himself, he was responsible for the two of them, for their marriage, for their household. So Adam was responsible for his sin, Eve was responsible for, for her sin, and Adam was responsible for their sin. You see that? That's how this works. Because Adam and Eve are in covenant together in marriage, and he is the head of that covenant. He has responsibility for the whole, for the whole household. Adam would have to answer for what happened, and that's why God comes to question him. Or here is yet another example. In Genesis 18, God says, I have known Abraham, or I have loved Abraham, in order that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord, to do righteousness 
and justice. It's a lot like Ephesians 6. In fact, I think in some ways Ephesians 6 is drawing off of Genesis 18. Ephesians 6 is addressed to fathers. Genesis 18, God addresses this instruction, this word to Abraham, Father Abraham, uh, because he's the one who is in charge of his household. He is responsible for his household, and he has the responsibility to command and train the members of his household in righteousness and justice. He's to train them to obey God. It's his house. It's his responsibility to do this. And Genesis 18 goes on to say that this is the means God will use to bring about what he has promised to Abraham. If this blessing God has given to Abraham is going to flow out uh, to his children and then to ultimately all the families of the earth, this will be the means that that, 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 that through which that is accomplished as he trains his own household. So think about it this way. Every member of Abraham's household will be responsible for himself before God. But Abraham also will be responsible for the household as a whole. It's clearly the teaching there. Here's yet another example. Joshua 24. Uh, it's those famous words of Joshua. He says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, uh, a modern American might think, well, what right does Joshua have to speak for his whole household? Shouldn't every member of the household make their own decision? How does he get to, to decide who they're going to worship? Well, again, the covenant explains it. Joshua has both the authority and the responsibility to act on behalf of his whole household. And so that's what he does. He can speak for the whole. Let me give you a negative example of this. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, commit sacrilege in the temple. They're priests. They sin before the very face of God. And they are judged for their sin. Judgment for their sin falls upon them. But Eli, their father, is also judged. And the text says, because he did not restrain them. He could have disciplined them. He was responsible to discipline them. And he failed. And so Eli is also held accountable. And this is a theme you see throughout the scripture. For example, Proverbs echoes this when it says in 28.7, whoever keeps the law is a discerning son, but a companion of gluttons shames his father. We're going to ask, well, why does the sin of the son bring shame upon the father? Well, the father experiences shame in his son's sin because in some way the father's responsible for it. There's a covenantal connection between them. He bears some responsibility for what his son is doing. Let me give you one last example of this. This is not from the Bible, it's from literature, but just to show how historically this has been understood. And this is not a family example, it's a political example, but it makes the same kind of point. Uh, in Shakespeare's play, Henry V, uh, after the great battle, the French king approaches Henry, who is the king of England. And as the French king comes to him, how does he address him? He says, hail brother England. He addresses Henry, not as hail most important man in England. No, he says, hail brother England. He addresses the king as England, as if he embodies England in himself. Because he understands the king is the covenant head of England. He in some way does embody England. He takes responsibility for England. He has authority over England. He can act on England's behalf in addressing him. You're addressing the whole nation in him. 
Okay, that example shows you our culture used to understand this, I would say, much better than we do today. Now, maybe modern Americans would say that just doesn't make any sense at all. And if it doesn't make sense to us, we've got a problem because, again, this is something that Scripture teaches us. Modern Americans tend to think almost solely in terms of individuals. And I will say, the individual does matter. Individual responsibility does matter. Individual rights do matter. But Scripture teaches us to think not in terms of either or, but in terms of both and. And so we would say individuals have responsibilities and obligations. We would also say there are corporate individuals and responsibilities. And the head of the covenant, whoever that is, whatever covenant structure we're talking about, has responsibilities for those who are under his leadership, under his covenant headship. The, the covenantal view has fallen on hard times. Um, I'll give you a few examples of this just so you can see how this uh, has worked out in our culture and even in the church, uh, even in, in the modern church. If someone is an unbeliever, okay, somebody is not born into a Christian home, they don't come from a Christian family, they've not heard the Bible taught, uh, obviously that person needs to hear the gospel. And when they do hear the gospel, they will have a decision to make. And of course, our hope would be that they will make a decision for Christ, that that person would choose to put his trust in Christ, that he would have a conversion experience. And of course, in choosing Christ and putting his trust in Christ, he'll come to Salvation. We, we know that's how it works. But in the modern American church, we have had a tendency to treat children growing up in faithful Christian families as if their membership in a Christian household really means nothing. And they too must make a decision or have a conscious conversion experience just like that unbeliever. And that, I think, is a problem. Because that's not what Scripture teaches. Scripture doesn't give us examples of that. What does Scripture give us? Well, instead we have examples like David, who grew up with a faithful father, Jesse. And what is David saying in Psalm 22? He says, I trusted in you as a nursing infant. You were my God even from the womb. That's David's testimony. Yes, David, for his testimony, he would say, I grew up knowing and trusting God from my earliest days even from the womb. We've got John the Baptist filled with the Holy Spirit and leaping with joy even in his mother's womb when she gets near to Jesus, who also happens to be in his mother's womb. We have Timothy learning the scriptures from his believing mother and grandmother, even in infancy. Paul can say the scriptures you have known from infancy. Paul can say to Timothy, you've known God and trusted in him and known his truth even from your earliest days. See, if you really press the individual view consistently to the end, you would have to say, really, there can't be any such thing as a Christian family or a Christian household. Only Christian individuals. That's all. God only deals with individuals. And yet in Scripture, again and again and again, we see God dealing with households. We see God claiming households and saving households. Noah and his household were saved on the ark. In the book of Acts, we see one household baptism after another. Uh, we've got the children of believers, even in their infancy, being brought to Jesus and, and being blessed by him and being recognized as members of Christ's kingdom. We've got children addressed as members of the church in Paul's letters. Paul writes a letter to the holy ones in Ephesus, 
And then within that letter, he addresses the children. They're members of that holy congregation, that holy covenant community. But again, in modern America, this theme in the Bible, this covenant theme, is poorly understood. And the result is we have lost any notion of what a Christian family or even what a Christian nation might really be. We have made the individual's private experience and his reason or his feelings the final authority, often displacing Scripture as it's preached and taught in the context of the church. In fact, that's part of this. By focusing so much on the individual, we've undermined the central importance of the church in God's purposes. And so now we have a situation today in modern America where many people who call themselves Christians think of the church as optional since they think of salvation as coming directly to the individual with no need for the church. What need do I have of the church? I've got my own private and personal relationship with God. The whole Christian faith has been restructured to meet individual felt needs rather than understanding that the church is really a new creation in Christ Jesus, this corporate entity we've been called into that's really the first fruits of God's new creation in Christ. The result is that in, in, in the American Christian context, the individual is constantly exalted above the community. And so every Christian tends to become his own authority with no accountability. This is why we don't have church discipline in so many American churches. Our individualism has turned us into a nation of religious consumers. And what is it we're seeking to consume? Usually it's just one experience after another where you can get the best experience on a Sunday morning, something of that nature. In, in all these ways... We have privatized the faith. We've made everything a matter of private, personal experience and nothing else. And that is a huge problem. I think when you reject this covenant pattern and, and the corporate responsibility that it brings with it, strange things happen. Again, let me give you another example of this. This is from the uh, libertarian uh, political philosopher, uh, Murray Rothbard. Libertarianism is very attractive to a lot of conservatives and a lot of Christians, and I can see why. There are many things about libertarianism that are compelling. It's appreciation of free markets and, and its desire to have a very limited government. Those are good things that I would affirm. But libertarianism, because it's based on this notion of individualism, really goes too far. Uh, probably the most famous libertarian philosopher is Murray Rothbard. And Rothbard really gets into trouble when he starts talking about the family because this kind of individualism doesn't, doesn't mesh with the family. But he wants to be consistent. He wants to be a consistent libertarian. And so he says, no one can compel you to do a positive act for them. You can never be obligated where you must do something for another person. Nobody else has any claim on you whatsoever. And he applies this even to the family. And so he says there should be no legal demand that parents feed and care for their own children. That's individualism taken to its most logical extreme. You can have no obligations imposed on you, even by a child you created. You have to be kept completely free. Everything must be a matter of choice. Everything must be a matter of consent. And so, no, you don't have an obligation even to keep your own children alive he would say, because they don't have any claim on you. It's just if you choose to do that, you can. 
And of course, Rothbard would say, if the parents do decide to keep the child alive and raise the child up, that child will have no obligations towards the parents when he gets older because he didn't choose these parents. That was not a matter of consent. And so you can't put any demands on him. He might decide to honor his parents or care for them in old age, but it can never be an obligation. Your only duty is to yourself. That's where this individualism leads. Or this is another uh, somewhat extreme example, but I think it's the kind of thing that's not uncommon. Uh, there have been various politicians throughout the years, maybe you haven't seen this or heard this, but various politicians who have basically tried to outlaw infant baptism because they see infant baptism as imposing on a child uh, unwanted or unchosen obligations. And so just last year, in Ireland of all places, the former president of Ireland, Mary McAleese, called on the church to stop baptizing babies. Listen to what she said and the logic of it. She said, the baptism of babies into the church is unsuitable and needs to be overhauled because it means people's freedoms are being suppressed for life. Here you have infants who are taking on obligations that will last for the rest of their lives, and we shouldn't be doing that. We should not be, I think she would say, forcing children into this kind of relationship with, with God and with the church. So she said, infant baptism imposes lifelong obligations and compulsory obedience to church teaching. It forces babies who cannot possibly understand what is being promised on their behalf to take on obligations they have not consented to. She points out infants are not capable of making such promises. Now here's the thing. She's, she's, she's right, I think, to understand that infant baptism does impose a religious identity and, yes, religious obligations on the child. And perhaps, strictly speaking, they aren't chosen. But the problem with her argument is that this is really inescapable. Everything parents do, not just baptizing a child, but everything parents do for their infant will constrain that infant and obligate that infant in various ways. If the parents teach the child to speak English, that's a constraint. The child didn't choose English out of, a, out of the array of languages that, that, that could have been taught. The child didn't choose to learn English. When the parents name a child, that's, that's not something that the child chose. That's not freely chosen. Yet that will constrain the child in certain ways. That will put limits in certain ways upon the child. There was actually one family years ago uh, and, and it's kind of a well-known story because their daughter grew up to become an Olympic snow skier. But they had decided we're going to be truly individualistic parents. We will even let our child choose her own name. So when she got to a certain age, she chose the name Peekaboo. And Peekaboo Street was her name. You can kind of see the absurdity of that. They're the ones, after all, who taught her Peekaboo. Had they taught her some other game, she would have ended up with some other name. So even then, you can't really get away from the fact that the parents have chosen certain things. But I would argue this. Parents will inescapably impose certain religious beliefs and practices on their child because there is no religious neutrality. Even if they say, we're just going to let our child grow up and, and choose his or her own religion, maybe even his or her own gender now is the thing, but we'll let our child make all those choices for himself or herself when this child gets older. Well, even that is imposing 
a certain, I'd say, very secular ideology, but still a very religious worldview upon the child. It's a modern Western religion, but it's still a very religious view of the world, a totalizing, absolute view of reality. You cannot escape that. And so while, yes, it is important to recognize individual rights, and while consent is crucial in certain areas of life, not everything can be a matter of choice. When and where you are born, who your parents are, what your nationality is, what your DNA is, what your skin color is, all of those things are givens. They're not choices. Not everything is a matter of choice. Not everything is a matter of consent. We are thrown into life with a whole matrix of factors that are assigned to us ultimately by God's providence. They're not voluntarily chosen by us. They're given to us by God. And that's just how life is. You can't escape it. The religious context of our birth is part of that givenness. It's inescapable. Every child is being raised with some kind of religious outlook on life. Will it be the Christian one or some other one? God says to Christian parents, make sure it's the Christian one. See, go to Ephesians chapter 6, that text we read this morning that addresses fathers and children. What are fathers told to do there? Fathers are told to bring their children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. What does this mean? Well, that word for nurture uh, is actually the Greek term paideia. I usually don't like to give you Greek and Hebrew terms, but in this case, I think it's, it's, it's useful. That Greek term paideia is really much more extensive uh, than what we might just think of as instruction. Uh, it actually, and I think the Ephesian Christians that Paul is writing to would have understood this, it, it's really comprehensive enculturation, comprehensive education. In the ancient world, Paideia aimed at creating the ideal man and ultimately the ideal society. And again, the Ephesians would have understood this. To bring up a child in the paideia of the Lord means to enculturate this child into the life of God's kingdom. It's not just about teaching a few Bible verses here and there. It's not just about teaching your child a trade or a skill so they can make a living. It's about raising up a child who can take his place as a citizen in the kingdom of Christ. That's really what it's about. See, they would have said, bring your child up in the paideia of Rome so he can be the ultimate Roman citizen. And Paul says, bring your child up in the paideia of the Lord so they can take their place as a citizen of the kingdom of Christ and so they can spread the culture of Christ's kingdom in the world. I think what Paul's indicating here is that really training children in Christian idea is the key to cultural transformation. We want to raise up a generation of world changers who will bring the culture of the kingdom of God into the world. That's really what paideia means. Paideia means inculcating in the child a worldview, yes, rooted in scripture, the worldview uh, that derives from scripture. It means training the child in virtue, certainly. It means developing in the child a love for goodness, beauty, and truth, which all find their ultimate source in God. It means all of this taken together. It means forming, we could say, the ideal Christian. That's your task as a father, to raise your child up in the paideia of the Lord. Christian parents are not told to let their children grow up and then decide for themselves what religion they will have or what God they will serve. No, fathers here are told to raise their children up in the paideia of the Lord, the nurture of the Lord. 
the Lord's paideia. The goal is not just to get our kids to make one decision for Christ. It's to train our kids so they make every decision for Christ. And this is a process that begins at birth. You might even say it begins at womb, but certainly begins at birth. And the thing is, and this is what Christian parents must understand, if you do not train your child in the Christian paideia, the world will gladly step in and train them in the secular paideia. If you don't fill that void with the Christian paideia, the world will step in and fill that void in its own way. So this then is the point when Paul says to raise your children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. What is he saying? He's saying that Christians are to count and treat their children as fellow Christians until and unless they prove they are not. And doing so indeed is one way that we help our children internalize and grow into the identity given to them in their baptisms. They've been united with the Lord in baptism. Now we help them grow into what that means so they can be who they are. So they can live as those who have been united to Christ, dead to sin and alive to righteousness. They are to be raised as Christians. In other words, as Christian parents, what do we aim for with our children? Not conversion, but discipleship. Christian parenting is discipleship. In fact, I would say it might be the most intense and intimate form of discipleship there is. Now, I want to wrap this up this morning by saying a few things first to kids and then a few things to parents. Paul addresses children and fathers in this passage. I want to do the same. So kids... Listen to me here for just a minute. Those of you who are young enough to still be living at home, maybe you haven't followed a whole lot of what I've been saying so far this morning, but I think you can follow this. It is a tremendous blessing for you to have Christian parents and to be brought up in a Christian home. You may not always like that, but it is a tremendous blessing, and it's a blessing that you should be thankful for. And perhaps the best way to show that you are thankful that God has placed you in a Christian home, perhaps the best way that you can show gratitude for this Christian upbringing you are receiving is to do what Paul says here in Ephesians chapter 6, to obey your parents. Paul says, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. What's it mean here to obey your parents? It means to listen to them, to do what they say. It means to absorb their teaching. It means to honor them. It means to ask them questions and have conversations with them so you can grow in wisdom. Your parents would love to teach you. You need to love to learn from your parents. Just like the son in Proverbs is being taught by his father, you should want to learn from your father and your mother both as they impart truth and wisdom to you. Don't ever say to your parents things like this, and this is really more for the teenagers, I suppose, but don't say something to your parents like, well, you, you just don't understand. You don't understand, Mom. Dad, you just don't understand. Now, the reality is your parents probably do understand more than you think. They almost certainly understand whatever it is you're going through. And you don't want to be wise in your own eyes. You want to always be teachable. Kids, you need to understand your status in the covenant. What your, no, not every child in this church is baptized in infancy, but let's just take that for granted here. Kids, you need to understand what your baptism means. And that because you have been baptized, you don't ever need to doubt God's love for you. You don't need to lay awake at night wondering whether or not you're really a Christian. You don't need to doubt whether or not Jesus died for your sins and whether or not his blood can cover all of your sins. You don't need to doubt whether or not you're a member of the church. 
You need to know beyond the shadow of a doubt that God is your God. And God has made promises to you in his word and in your baptism. Remember your baptism. And I'll tell you this too, kids. If your parents do their job well, you will probably grow up to have a very boring Christian testimony. And I would say that that's a blessing too. That's a blessing as well. Uh, Because I would guess most of you growing up in this church with the parents you have here, most of you will grow up never being able to remember a time in your life when you did not love and trust the Lord Jesus Christ. And so your testimony is not going to have a real sharply defined before and after the way it does for somebody who comes out of a a non-Christian context, a non-Christian home. But that's okay. That just means your testimony is like David and John the Baptist and Timothy. It's okay. In fact, it's good and right and normal to be a cradle Christian and to grow up knowing and loving and trusting the Lord Jesus Christ and never being able to remember a day when you did not know God. In fact, think about this. You know, kids, how many of you can remember the first time you met your father? Probably none of you can remember that far back. Unless your dad was off in the military service somewhere. You were much older when you met him. You can't remember being introduced to your earthly father. You can't, be, you can't remember being introduced to your heavenly father either. And that's okay. Because he's always already been there. He loved you first. He loved you first. Now, at some point, kids, you might have some well-meaning Christians who are going to doubt your testimony. They'll ask you, how did you become a Christian? And because they they bought into this individualistic view I have described, if you say to them, well, I was baptized as a baby and my parents have raised me as a Christian. I was baptized as a baby and I've been walking with Christ ever since. However imperfectly, it's been my desire to, to love and trust Jesus from as far back as I can remember. There are people who will say to you in the church, that's not good enough. And you need to say back, yes, it is. You do. Uh, you, you need to say, God has been faithful to his promises, and my life is the fruit of that. This is your testimony. God has been faithful to his promises. And you need to, again, give God thanks for the tremendous blessings that come with being born into a Christian household. But you also need to know there are some dangers that come with being born into a Christian household. Maybe the biggest danger of all is to take all of this for granted and to think it's yours just by nature or even worse, because you deserve it. Now, all of this is yours because of God's grace. It's not because you inherited something from your parents. It's not because you're better or your family's better than everybody else. It's because of God's grace, because God graciously said, I will be a God to you and to your children. Don't take these things for granted. Learn to live as a thankful and growing Christian. Learn how to fight sin in your life. Learn how to grow as a Christian in knowledge and in wisdom. Learn to love God's truth, God's scripture. Don't take the blessings you have in your Christian family for granted. Having a a faithful, masculine Christian father and a faithful, feminine Christian mother who love each other and who are in the covenant of marriage themselves bringing you up, that is one of the greatest blessings of all. Not everybody gets that. Don't take it for granted. That's probably the biggest danger, but there's one other danger I want to mention here. It's the temptation to become a hypocrite. The temptation to become a hypocrite. Mom and dad have high standards. And what happens when you fail to meet them? You might decide to keep your sin hidden. 
You might think to yourself, no good Christian kid would do what I've done. And so I just won't let anybody know about it. And kids, you need to know, when you keep your sin in the dark that way, what happens? Sin grows in the dark. Sin thrives in the darkness. What do you need to do? Yeah, it can be really painful, really hard. But you need to get your sin out in the open, out in the light, where you can kill it. You are covenant children. That does not mean you are sinless children. You sin, we all sin. You need to learn to deal with your sin Christianly, which means confessing it, repenting it of it, and fighting against it. That's what it means. That's what it means to learn to live as a Christian. You're not going to be sinless this side of glory. But learn to get your sin out in the open where you can deal with it, where you can put it to death. And your parents would be glad to help you do that. Yeah, they may be mad at you for something you've done. That's not unexpected. But you need to know they're on your side. They're on your team. They want to help you work through whatever your sin issues are. So now you can go to them. Let me speak to you, parents, uh, as well here for just a minute. You parents, especially with little ones in the home, you need to know and remember that your children are not really your children. They are God's children. Every Christian parent is really a foster parent. God's given you these kids to take care of, to raise on his behalf, but they are really his children. Scripture is really clear about this. It talks about how God brings together a man and and a woman in, in his people, in his covenant, because he seeks after holy seed. That's seed, that's children that belong to him. You need to understand your task is to train your children to be warriors in God's army. Psalm 127 says children are arrows in the quiver. They're weapons to be used in the great spiritual battle that's taking place. Psalm 8 tells us, out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants, he has established strength to silence the foe and the avenger. Think about what that passage means. And Jesus quotes this at the triumphal entry when the kids are shouting Hosanna as he's coming into the city. city. But you're squirmy little kids who you have to wrestle with all Sunday morning long. Those those kids who make all kinds of noises you wish they didn't make as you're trying to train them to worship. You need to remember, even their infant babblings are accepted as praise to God. And God uses their cries to silence his enemies. Your children are soldiers in God's army serving on the front lines. And you need to understand, as you train your children to worship, and I know that's a hard thing to do, But but training your children to to, to worship, that is a key weapon in our arsenal. Training your kids to worship is an act of worship. Training your kids to worship is an act of warfare. That's what Psalm 8 says. God will use your children to silence the foe and the avenger. What should you do, Christian parents? You should bring your children to Jesus continually to be blessed by him. You can do that by bringing them to church every Sunday. Always make church attendance a great priority. You can do it by reading scripture and singing psalms and hymns and praying at home. Make family worship a habit. And if you want some resources for that, we can help you with that. Your home should be a school in which truth is taught and a temple in which God is worshipped. Fathers, you are the ones addressed in Ephesians 6 because of the covenant, because you are the head 
You're responsible for this. You're responsible to see that this work is done, this work of bringing your children up in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. But of course, mothers are included in this, and Scripture is really clear. Mothers are to be honored. Mothers have authority. Mothers have wisdom to impart. Proverbs says, listen to the voice of your father and your mother. That's really clear. Mothers are helpers in this work. And so fathers, I would say, figure out how to work with your wife as a team of one. So you're always presenting a united front to your children. Fathers here are commanded to not provoke or exasperate their children. And that's because fathers have a tendency to be harsh. I think you can flip this around and know what the problem typically is for mothers. Mothers tend to coddle their children. They tend to be too soft on their children. Both are damaging. Fathers who exasperate, mothers who coddle. And that's why you need to work together as a team, mother and father. Obviously, there needs to be discipline. That's included in what Paul says here. But discipline has to be consistent and proportional. And it must be administered in love, not in anger. The discipline needs to be not for your convenience as a parent. That's what all too many parents do. No, it's got to be as a way of training your child for your child's good. When you discipline your child, the whole point is to train your child to fear God and to hate what is evil. The goal is not just to have well-behaved kids. Okay, pagans can train well-behaved kids. You can train a dog to be well-behaved. That's not the point. The goal is to have children who are loyal to the covenant into which they've been baptized. Children who are loyal to God. Again, the most important thing about discipline is that it be administered in a context of love. Unless your kids enjoy being with you and enjoy their relationship with you, unless your kids know that you love them and that you delight in them, unless the culture of the family is happy, then the discipline is not going to be effective. Because when when a child doesn't have a good relationship with his parents and then the parents go to discipline, that just becomes a moment of acute pain in a life of chronic pain. And that's not effective discipline. Effective discipline is when there's joy and love and beauty in the home, and then you're momentarily excluded from that because you've sinned. And then the child wants back into that because it's so happy, it's so fun to be a part of things. That's what makes discipline effective. Of course, the goal of discipline is freedom. The goal of disciplining our children, the goal of parental discipline, is self-discipline. And this is why it's so important to be very strict and consistent when the children are young so that you can progressively remove rules from them as they get older. You should be moving towards greater and greater freedom. And if you find yourself having to invent more and more rules and clamp down more and more, you should recognize that's a problem. You're going in the wrong direction. You're doing things backwards. All too often, parents don't discipline when the kids are young because it's too inconvenient. But then when the kids get to be teenagers, they really try to clamp down with rules. Well, you can't do that. You can't clamp down on an undisciplined teenager just with rules. It's too late. That's doing things upside down. The bulk of your disciplined parents should happen in those early years. And then you can enjoy those teenage years because you will trust in your kids. They will begin to internalize your standards. And parental discipline will more and more give way to self-discipline. Obviously, parents, being an example of humble obedience yourself is important for your children. They need to see what the Christian life looks like by looking to you because they will imitate you. Praying with and for your children is key because in prayer we confess our utter dependence upon God. And a lot of other things we could point to. A lot of other practical things we could point to. But let me sum it up with this. 
Do you know what the most important work for mothers and fathers to do is? What the most important way you can be faithful as a mother and a father? What it really is, what it really comes down to? It comes down to this. Believing God's promises. God's promises are the foundation on which you build. You build your Christian family, you build your Christian household on the foundation of God's covenant promises. You have to believe those promises. You have to understand the heart of covenant keeping is promise believing. It is that covenant promise, I will be a God to you and to your children, that shapes how you treat your children, how you teach your children, how you discipline your children, how you pray with and for your children. Those covenant promises give you the framework for what you're doing as a parent. Parental working arises from parental resting in the covenant promises. But you need to remember, too, that the world has its version of covenant theology, not based on divine promises, but based on the devil's lies. And if you do not faithfully and diligently disciple your child again, the world would be glad to do it for you. And you have to understand, your children, like you, your children are under constant attack, and you've got to guard your children, and you've got to fight back. But that doesn't mean you should live in fear. Yes, your kids are growing up in a spiritually dangerous world. Maybe you feel like it's more spiritually dangerous than the one you grew up in. But you need to know God has prepared you as mothers and fathers for just this moment. And he has given you your particular children for a time such as this. All of the great heroes of the faith lived in hard times. David, Daniel, Esther, the apostles. They had to face Goliath, the lion's den, an evil king, a persecuting Caesar. But they faced all of that. They faced those trials and they prevailed. And you and your kids can do the same. Don't be scared for your kids. Again, rest in God's promises. Don't be scared for your kids. Rather, raise your children to face the challenges of their times. Seek to raise up Davids and Daniels and Esthers. God is calling upon you, moms and dads, to raise up kingdom warriors who won't run from the field of battle, but who will live faithful, courageous, humble, loving, obedient lives. Take responsibility for your kids and use your authority over them to prepare them for that day when they're no longer under your authority. Preparing them to to live faithful and mature Christian lives. See yourself as an instrument in God's hands to mold and shape your children. The younger they are, the more malleable they are. And so get to work. Understand, you are God's representative to speak His truth and apply His truth to their lives. And in this way, Covenant parents and covenant children can form a covenant household that is full of hope and happiness and holiness, a covenant household that will bring glory to God and further his kingdom. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.